0: From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today, Klarna's valuation slashed in its latest funding round, Flutterwave has accounts frozen in Kenya, and Playboy teases pixelated mansion in the metaverse. All this and much, much more on today's show. But first, let's hear a quick word from something that we've been cooking up here at 11FS.
1: Here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services, and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you, or somebody you know, are up for a challenge and fancy working for one of Flex's most flexible companies, come check out our open roles. We have roles in growth, product, sales, talent, and more. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. That's 11fs.com forward slash careers.
0: Welcome to episode 646 of FinTech Insider. My name is David Breer and I'm joined this week on FinTech Insider News by my 11FS colleague, Kate Moody, who is the Global Strategy Director of Customer Experience here at 11FS. How's it going, Kate?
1: Yeah, not too bad. Um, I'm not at my most mentally astute today,
0: must yeah. admit. We should fess up on that one, really, shouldn't we? So, uh, me, me and Kate went to a awards ceremony last night, and one thing sort of led to another. And then, like, both of us have been quite sort of. I turned up with sunglasses on this morning, honestly. It was like, <laughs> it was quite uh, quite a night, wasn't it? It was good.
1: Yeah, and it was good fun. We had a couple of other colleagues of us as well. So, we weren't just being miscreants on our own, we had other, other people leading us astray. And
0: we did win a thing as well, we right? Did win so, a that, thing. Was, that was nice. So, we, yeah. we won. So, it was the uh, FinTech London Awards. And we got the advisory business of the year, which was kind of cool. So uh, shiny award ceremony, it was good.
1: Yeah, uh, I came into the office this morning, and David was like nudging everything along on the award shelf to squash it in. No, it was myself. literally.
0: Yeah, we're going to need a bigger shelf, guys. It's uh, it's going it's going well. But other than that, good week.
1: Yeah, no, good week. Good week. So yeah, lots of lots of people in the office, which is quite nice. So mm. good to catch up with people. But yeah, lots and, lots and going a dog
0: on. in the office today as well. Everybody's it, always happy. Like sun is shining. There's a dog in the office. All is well in the world. An right?
1: adorable dog in the office. Shout out to Ob. World's best dog.
0: I'm not sure he's a listener, like, but...
1: I bet he is. We can
0: go tell him afterwards, can't we? All right. As always, we're joined by some super-duper awesome guests. Making a full panel debut on FinTech Insider, we have Abubakar Idris, who is the African reporter at Rest of World. Welcome to the show. How are you doing?
2: Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Doing great.
0: Very, very cool. And for anybody who doesn't know, um, give us a bit of an introduction into uh, Rest of World and, and what's your what's your news beat? What do you cover?
2: Sure. Um, rest of World is a U.S.-based publication covering the impact of technology in emerging markets. And I cover the African region and I'm based in Lagos. Uh, my tech reporting beats is, you know, the entire tech industry here on the continent. And I cover everything from fundraising to startup innovation, all the way down to various industries and marketplaces across the continent.
0: Very, very cool. I mean, there's lots and lots and lots of things happening in that region as well. So uh, you must be pretty busy. So uh, we will definitely come to you uh, as we go. But welcome to the show. Uh, it is a another FinTech Insider debut also for Anita Ramaswamy, who is the reporter at TechCrunch. How's it going, Anita?
3: It's going great. It's great to be on here today.
0: We were just, uh, before we started, I was admiring your, your walls and you're like, you're at home right now. And like, in your childhoods, you know, like, did, did yeah. you ever think when you were growing up in that room, you'd be like, I'll be doing a podcast, like, with a global audience. Like, it's kind of weird, isn't it? You know?
3: It is. You know, It's really funny. My walls are lime green for anyone listening. They're very bright. They're
0: super cool. Super cool. Thank but uh, but yeah, like like you said before, it's like, look, when you were 10 and you picked them or 13 or whatever, <laughs> like you never thought somebody'd be making a joke about it like 10 years later. But, uh, but here we are anyway. But uh, tell us, I mean, everybody knows TechCrunch, so you don't need to probably introduce that so much. But what do you cover for TechCrunch?
3: Yeah, so I am a fintech and crypto reporter. And within those beats, I'm pretty broad, don't have a specific regional focus, but I cover startups, venture capital and different trends in those two industries.
0: Very cool. I mean, it's not like there's not been anything going on in the uh, the crypto world at the moment, right? So uh, yeah. you must have been pretty busy as well. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into it because there's lots of things to to cover in the news. Uh, and first up was uh, a story that we picked up on Bloomberg, uh, but it was pretty much everywhere. It's pretty much everybody was talking about. Definitely lots of people in the, the 11FS Slack talking about this one this week. Uh, Klarna's valuation slashed by $39 billion amid fintech uh, changes that are, uh, are sort of happening. Klana's valuation has been slashed uh, to $6.7 billion in its latest funding round. The buy now, pay later giant said it raised $800 million from new and existing investors, according to the statement earlier on this week. Its valuation is down from $45.6 billion that it achieved in June 2021. Uh, once one of the world's most valuable startups, I mean, it was very much the the darling of the world, wasn't it, with regards to uh, everything that was really happening in that space? But Chief Executive Officer Sebastian Simakowski said in a series of tweets that Kana is not immune to the stock downturn, and now it's the time to focus on a return to profitability. So, I mean, Kate, dang, that's a—they lost a lot of money in well, like a really short period of time, didn't they? But is this a sort of a you know, broader sign of everything that's happening in the market in terms of the reckoning we're expecting? Or is this just, you know, very specific to Klarna, do you think?
1: Well, that's certainly how they've they've positioned it. Like, if you read that that press release, I would love to have seen like the track changes on that press release, because it was like a lot they were trying to pack into that and lots of nuance they were trying to convey. But um, yeah, I mean, obviously, they are raising in a very difficult time. There's lots of economic challenges. But, you know, Klarna themselves are also facing their own very specific challenges. Um, You know, they're coming under more regulatory uh, scrutiny in lots of markets. Apple have just happened to announce that they're going into their territory. Uh, And there's lots of general concern about buy now, pay later in the economic downturn. You know, we're seeing more and more reports of people using it to fund groceries and everyday essentials. And there's real concerns about whether that money is being borrowed responsibly, whether they're going to be able to get that money back. So, yeah, really difficult to tell. But lots of challenges, both from a market perspective, but also for them as a brand. So, big, big news. Mm.
0: I don't. I haven't dug into this enough. But but lending and lending at that level should be really profitable. Like you know, what I mean, like lending is essentially how banks make most of their money. So why do they need another eight hundred million to? And actually, wouldn't you, if you were generating so much revenue, why wouldn't you pivot to profitability rather than? Uh, raise more capital to go. You know, is this is this capital to be used to grow the business, or just like is this the the corn in the in the barn to like weather the storm? You know.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, you assume that they wouldn't have raised at this time in these difficult conditions if they didn't
0: have to. Well, definitely not that valuation for sure. Yeah, yeah, precisely.
1: I mean, they say in the press release that it's going to be focused on helping them expand in the US. Maybe they want to double down on the US before Apple launches. I mean, I think Apple is going to launch in. Q3 of this year so I guess maybe they feel that they need to kind of capitalise on the US sooner rather than later um, and I guess it's less regulatory cons- you know, pressure on them in the US whereas I think you know the UK and other markets are starting to, to clamp down a bit on, on buying up by later so yeah, hard to hard to tell but certainly they've they've said in the press release that it's going to be focused on their US expansion.
0: Yeah. Anita, what do you think on this one? I mean, it's uh, a, a lot of people have been talking about this uh, this week, haven't they, in terms of uh, is this the uh, the start of the end of the world when it comes to fintech and everything that's happening, but what what's your guys take on this?
3: Yeah, I mean, Klarna has been the talk of the town certainly, but I think it's reflective of broader downturns within the buy now pay later industry in general. There's like you said Kate, there's been a lot of scrutiny on this industry and You know, Klarna took a really big valuation haircut, but so have many of their competitors who are in the public markets. I think Affirm is down around seventy-five percent. PayPal is down some sixty percent. Block is down around sixty percent. And so, Klarna's around eighty-five percent valuation haircut actually doesn't look that bad when you take it in context of the industry. Um, You know, I do think that for a lot of those those reasons, with you know people sort of taking on more debt than maybe they thought they could support. there's a lot of people paying a lot of attention closely now to what is the quality of the underwriting that these buy now, pay later companies are actually conducting. And that's where, you know, David, your point about, shouldn't this be really profitable? I actually think taking a step back and considering the fact of like, who is actually, who is the client for a buy now, pay later company? It's actually the merchants, right? It's merchants who use their services, generally speaking, because a lot of the times the standard BNPL offering is interest-free for the customer, So even though customers might love it, this really comes down to a question of, you know, how much are merchants actually willing to pay for this service? Because the reason a merchant would pay for it is it would give them some marketing benefit. They think they can acquire new customers through this channel. Um, And given, you know, we're seeing this huge downturn in the overall economy, I think merchants and retailers in particular might feel that they're a bit more constrained and not have as much money to spend on this type of service.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? There's lots of research out there to, to really back up what you say, In Anita. I think people sort of say it's 60 to 70% increase in basket sizes when people are using buy now, pay later. Just made those stats up, but I'm pretty sure that's what I've read somewhere. So fact check me, everybody. Um, <laughs> that you can complain at podcast.11fs.com. Um, but, um, but with that said, then actually you can see why it makes sense for the retailers to To push in this way, doesn't it? Because it just makes everything growth happen in in a in a major way, doesn't it? But but then to your point, it's like well, so how does that work from a lending perspective? Because they're not getting yes. If people don't pay in those full payments, then the APR kicks in in the way that they would do more traditionally. But but actually, that's not really necessarily. And and to your point, Kate, I mean, the market's getting fluffed, like real like huge organizations coming in like Apple will dominate on a distribution play perspective you would have thought where Klaner just I wouldn't think would have been able to compete in that sense so I mean really is this um you know yes we're seeing this as a, a a more market broad thing but you know is is the fun over when it comes to buy now pay later do you think?
1: No, absolutely not. I mean, it's still got. It's just having a bit of a, a bit of a knockback. But I mean, Klarna are huge. I mean, they've got global coverage, and I think that's what they've again emphasised in their in their press release. And since their last raise, they've expanded to even more markets. And Apple are only going to start in the US first. I think they're trying to kind of make that move to doing all their lending in house now, and that's going to take Apple time to to scale. So I think Klarna are definitely in a, in a great position, um, and I think actually buying up later is is just expanding as a space because we're now starting to see more and more fundraising around B2B by an up a later. Like actually there's been some really interesting series A and series B raises for for B2B by an up a later providers. So I think the whole sector is is just going to continue to grow, but obviously it's going to go through
0: checks and balances as it goes. Yeah. Abaka, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I mean we've been following the developments um with Klan and the entire BMPL space for a long for a while now. And um, I think everybody's spooked by you know that down that down round that they just announced. And everybody has been anticipating it for a while. Um, but at the same time, um yeah, it's it's still something that that, that makes a lot of people wonder like why exactly are they um, trying to raise more money? What exactly does this mean? And how exactly can other companies um look at this trend and what does it mean for their businesses also? But I think um from my own region, um, people are taking this more as a learning moment where they can reflect on the various practices that they are currently using to grow their, grow and scale their businesses. Because um, in the last two years, in particular, there have been a bunch of um, buy now, pay later services come up. Um, knowing fully well that they have a Nigeria has a credit crunch, and um, at the same time, uh, credit backgrounds and um, um, industry as a whole is still behind. So people are paying attention to what exactly this trend could mean for not just um, the US or for European markets, but also for African markets where Binampilita is only just getting off the ground. And if this is happening to Klana, which is one of the biggest, it could also happen here too. And that's what's spoken a lot of people.
0: Yeah. I mean it's interesting, isn't it? We've got um we've got a weird and globally we've got a weird sort of confluence of things happening, haven't we? We've got a, you know, housing prices are going up globally. We've got Cost of living challenges pretty much everywhere in the world in terms of the the cost of uh, you know oil and gas and electricity and everything that's happening, as well as uh, people making lots of people unemployed uh, and these things. You know, there's such an interesting mix of uh, issues in that sense. So, but uh, I guess only time will tell whether this is a you know is a permanent sort of rebalancing or whether it is a just a blip in that sense in terms of where we're at. But uh, I think to your point, Kate, Klarna are a, a pretty damn big company. Uh, there's a lot of great people who work there. I'm sure they'll figure out how to uh, to bounce back and get that valuation up for sure.
1: Yeah, and I think all of our investors, that you are know, quoted in the press release, just seem to think they've got, gone in at a great time where they're going to get value on their on their investment. So they seem pretty confident that it's a temporary blip and they're going to reclaim that value in the future. So
0: Sounds good. Well, I, I mean, I don't know about you. I mean, back to your point, Anita, about shares, like, I'd advise everybody not to look in your free trade account or your Robin Hooder account or whatever <laughs> yeah, right definitely now. It's, don't. De- it's just depressing. Like, go go read something else, like a book or something, you know. Come, come back in maybe a year, maybe 18 months. Uh, but, uh, all right, we better jump into the next story then, uh, which is one that we picked up on Al Jazeera. Uh, Fintech Flutterwave has accounts frozen in Kenya amid court probe. Uh, A court in Kenya has frozen more than $40 million in accounts belonging to Flutterwave under the country's anti-money laundering laws, court documents have now shown. Uh, Founded in 2016 in Nigeria, Flutterwave specializes uh, in individual and consumer financial transfers and is one of several fintechs capitalizing on a Africa's booming payments market. In a statement from Kenya's Assets Recovery Agency, Flutterwave was among seven firms suspected to have been used as conduits for card fraud in banks in the guise of providing merchant services. The court ordered stops Flutterway from conducting any transactions from more than a dozen accounts with three banks, which held $43 million in sterling euros and Kenyan shillings. Flutterwave said its operations were regularly audited and continuously engaged uh, regulatory agencies to ensure that they were staying uh, compliant. I mean, this is super interesting, wasn't it? As we, I mean, it's always the way, isn't it? Like, actually, we see a a flurry of opportunities and and raises and all different types of things in a market, and then a market becomes more attractive to problems, I guess. But, Ababakar, what do you think on this one? Is this a, uh, is this a a sort of a bit of a mark that we'll see um, on Flutterwave, but, you know, more broadly as well?
2: Yeah, it's a very, it's a very touchy topic. Um, For starters, I think the the most important thing that's critical here is to understand that this is happening at a time when, Um, Flutterwave is just um, reeling off um, a series of controversies that started in April. Um, Investigative reports from April documented how much the, the, the bad culture at the company and the maladministration and, you know, culture of negligence. And a few other bad practices that the company's management had engaged in in the past and it was just only coming to light because more people were willing to talk about it. And then just after that incident, um, we're seeing this report, which is coming um, two months after the initial reporting. And it kind of validates a few things that a few people have said and, um, and some allegations that came out in April, which were about um, fraud, money laundering, and several other kinds of um, of, of financial fraud broadly. But um, now we're seeing the reg- a, a government agency actually step in and say, okay, we're investigating these things. We're looking into this company and we found this and we're going ahead to freeze the accounts while we conduct more investigations. So, as a whole, the story is really really um interesting and also scary because um this company has grown so big in the last few years and it became the darling of African fintech only for it to get, you know, stuck with this kind of um agency trouble. Um, by nobody else than, you know, a financial intelligence um, agency like the ARA in Kenya. And so everybody's paying attention to what exactly this um, this investigation holds, what exactly the, the agency is going to find, and how can the company recover coming from back-to-back crisis and now landing in a very serious case of money laundering allegation by one of the top agencies, in kenya so it's it's a really um difficult topic but i think it is one that everybody's paying attention to because it could impact how flutter we are placed not just in kenya but in the rest of africa at the same time
0: yeah i mean do you see that uh that being sort of an impact i mean obviously there's a uh there's a lot going on here you know uh, ex employees being disgruntled is you know no organization is uh, a stranger to that in that sense but like you say when a uh, financial investigation happens and the regulator starts turning off accounts like that's a, a completely different thing so do you think reputationally they're going to be hit pretty hard on this one
2: yeah i think they'll, i think they'll they'll you know suffer some reputational damage uh, mostly because it's an ongoing issue. This was not the first of it. This is just part of a series of you know um, discoveries that I've started since, since April. And so, um, I believe people in the fintech industry themselves have their own perception about this company. And some of them who have had some negative experiences also have you know their own thoughts and statements that they've shared in private as well as in public uh, on a few cases. But generally, before April. Um, Flutter, you had a, a sterling reputation. You had a very. Um, positive support from the public and from everybody in the tech industry. And there was very little that would lead us to think that things like this could happen by February when the company announces Series D fundraising and uh, funding round. So so it's it's a bit difficult to 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 not assume that there will be reputational damage from this this event. But I think the way the company responds to these issues is what would really go in the long term to determine how much, how damaging these allegations could you know hit the company's growth over time. Um, because because right now everybody's um a few people who have had direct exposure to these issues Say they are fatigued, they're tired. They don't want to talk about it. At least from my own reports, and that's what they've told me. Um, but the investigation is not going to let go. It's not going to let off. It's still going to continue, and so it's still going to be investigating very serious allegations. And so people who are businesses that have relationships with with, with Flutterwave would be questioning some of their own practices and, and their relationship with the company itself. And so there's going to be, you know, an obvious reputational damage here. Well, it will entirely depend on how the company itself reacts to it and how quickly it can um cooperate with the regulators and the investigator to close this case.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, Anita, I guess uh not necessarily directly on Flutterwave here, but I mean every ecosystem sort of develops and then, you know, we, we sort of see startups coming in with a you know completely unbridled view of what financial services is, and then a couple of years in they're like Regulation's a thing, you know, like regulation's a big thing, and we've probably got to be quite regulated. So, I mean, we've seen this in the US, we've seen this in the UK, we've seen this in Singapore. Uh, I mean, is this anything different than that, do you think, in that sense? Is it just the the sort of maturing of the market to be like, no, actually, there's a bar here, and you need to meet this bar?
3: I, I definitely think that's a big part of it, at least, you know, from my perspective. And it's funny because I spend a lot of my time covering crypto, and I think that's exactly what we're seeing play out in the crypto industry right now, where you know, there's this huge reckoning and startups are realizing there there are rules, we got to play by them. Um, and that regulation is really a, a looming threat. And I think it's just sort of part of it is definitely the natural evolution of these really young companies that think they can sort of do anything and then come crashing down to reality.
0: Yeah, I mean it's interesting because it's um, I mean obviously the the sort of battle on talent, Kate. Uh, I mean some of the things that you sort of read that the sort of allegations, you know, moving slightly away from the uh, the regulatory side of things, but more the sort of cultural aspects of it. Then, I mean, not only from a customer's perspective, but purely from an employee's perspective, it seems like quite a quite a difficult thing to overcome, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, you, you, would, you would definitely think so. I mean, they've certainly, they've made some some announcements recently. I think they've, they've taken some talent, I think from Goldman, from American Express. So I think they're bringing in some of that experienced external talent to bolster their senior team and, and maybe that will help to kind of counterbalance, to kind of, you because know, obviously they are a hugely impressive company. They've scaled really impressively, but, you know, they're a growing company. So they're going to need to continue to evolve and, and change and maybe this is part of that. Um, I do think, I suppose, to, point you're making, like, is this similar to what we've seen in the UK and the US and Singapore? I suppose my concern is that in some ways, this is a bit different because it's not just about Flutterwave, it's about confidence in the whole African market. And I think we've seen investors generally be a bit slow. I mean, obviously, like, there's huge momentum now, but it took a long time, I think, for investors to to build that confidence to invest in the, in the market. Um, and I suppose having the flagship you know, unicorn in this market struggling this way. You hope that it doesn't hold back other startups in the market because there's so many really, really impressive, interesting companies coming yeah. out of lots of different parts of Africa. So, I just really hope that doesn't hold mm. hold them back.
0: Well, and there has been some, you know, it's not, uh, obviously, there's some very specific claims here with these guys. But, you know, we've seen businesses shut down in Australia. We've seen, you know, down rounds with Klarna. We've seen, I mean, Monzo had a down round two ago as well, didn't they? You know, and actually, all these things are kind of used by corporates as like, see those fintechs, you know, like, and there's sort of almost like the reputational damage of the industry and the movement in that sense. But, but I think also, as we were talking about a second ago, the the reputational damage for for consumers giving these companies a, a a go, an alternative to like the the mainstream, the incumbents in that sense. So, yeah, I can see it being pretty damaging all around, really.
1: Yeah, and I think my understanding is that um, you know, the Flutterwave CEO is himself an investor in the African tech space. I think he has his own investments in startups. So, again, you just it's this, all this whole ecosystem is so interdependent and. You just don't want progress to be, undone. to be held up or undone. So, yeah, fingers, fingers crossed.
0: All right. Well, definitely we will come back to this one as it develops, uh, as we will do with Klana as well. But we're going to take a quick break now and hear from our sponsors. So we're going to go out on a limb here and assume that you're enjoying this podcast. We're also going to assume that, like us, you're a fintech nerd and that our podcasts, live events, video series, and documentaries keep you tapped into everything that's happening across fintech and connected to the fintech community. So if you're interested in creating content that informs and entertains, then you should definitely chat to our media team and get in touch on sponsors at 11fs.com. Welcome back. Let's get on with the next story. Uh, So, next up, we have one that was picked up uh, by our team on Reuters, which is Brazilian lender Creditas raises $200 million and then buys a bank, as you do. Uh, Brazilian fintech lender Creditas is raising $200 million from investors, as well as buying a bank and a mortgage startup as it moves to increase its profitability. The SoftBank Bank firm. SoftBank-backed firm, that's harder to say than you think it would be, which operates an online platform offering consumer loans, is buying the Brazilian banking license of Honduras and Bank, and will begin accepting deposits pretty much immediately. The fintech also said it bought uh, mortgage marketplace Kazas Kizaz? Kizaz? Just say it
1: confidently, David. Cool.
0: We'll go with that. Uh, Allowing it to offer home loans uh, from other lenders alongside its own as well. So far, the credit has raised $830 million from investors, including SoftBank, Fidelity Investments, QED Investors, and a bunch of other big names as well. I mean, that's pretty ballsy, isn't it? It's like... um, I mean, it goes back to what we were saying a second ago about regulation. It's like, well, actually, regulation is there to, like, you know, protect things and, you know, slow down people coming in and da-da-da. And then you just buy a bank and then suddenly you're regulated and you have all, you know, that's quite an interesting step in Eater, isn't it?
3: Yeah, it is. And I think for Creditas, it makes a lot of sense because Brazil has just introduced these new regulations that will make um, fintech subject to higher capital requirements. So they have to have more reserves on hand. And I think those regulations, you know, from what I've read, aren't going to take effect until starting next year, and then it'll be rolled out until around 2025. So it's possible that what Creditas is trying to do is just get ahead of that. You know, if they buy a bank that already has dealt with some of this regula- regulation, they they sort of are familiar with what the processes are, then Creditas doesn't have to build that from the ground up. Uh, whereas other fintechs might, you know, if they wait now, it might be caught off guard when the regulation actually does take effect. So in a way, they're sort of preparing for the future.
0: Yeah, it's interesting isn't it? And and uh, I mean the the quotes that was sort of coming out from the chief exec uh, Sergio Furio, brilliant name, like absolutely what a name. brilliant. Name. Yes. So he told Reuters that getting retail deposits as a new alternative for funding will improve our margins. And it's like yeah, that makes sense. Like that's a that's a well-trod sort of business model in that sense in terms of actually what they then can do with that capital. Obviously there's a huge amount of restrictions in that sense, but I guess globally we're seeing fintechs pivoting to to mortgages, as a, I mean, mortgages and lending, like they're the lifeblood of the banking system, aren't they? In terms of actually where where profit really comes from, uh, in a retail banking sense, anyway. Um So it's interesting we're seeing, I mean, Starling over here in the UK, we're seeing you know players globally really really trying to sort of get into that mortgages space. So, uh, but I mean, the the whole region, as you were, were saying, Anita, I mean. Brazilian fintech is sort of, uh, with the scale that they can tap into, it's not just these guys and Nubank. There's a whole flurry in that system, isn't there?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we tend to focus on Nubank just because it is just so astronomically successful. I think, what, 54 million customers across Latin America now. Um, But yeah, I mean, there's such a huge variety of different fintechs in Brazil and in also you know markets like Colombia, Mexico. I'm excited I think Ecuador now has got a unicorn as well. So like the whole region just seems to be growing, 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 really kind of countering what we're seeing in, in sort of Europe and, and the US. Um, but I think also, what I've, I've been really interested in is seeing kind of that balance between like, the innovation that's coming from fintechs, but also kind of what the Brazilian government is, is pushing themselves. So, you need know, to mention, obviously, they're bringing these new regulations to try and increase the capital requirements. But they've also done some great stuff with you know, their PICS, their kind of fast money transfer scheme, which you know they pushed as a central government initiative to make sure that everyone had to accept it. And now I think more than half of the Brazilian population use it so they've been able to introduce a new digital technology and really drive adoption by having that kind of come from government and kind of really creating the drive for all of the banks and fintechs to, to work to it. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just a really exciting and interesting market because it's obviously had this history of being dominated by old incumbent banks that were charging astronomical fees and rates to their customers. But now we're seeing it change so quickly because of the likes of New Bank and all of these other players in the market. So um I'm really just angling to get to go and work in the market. That's that's really what I'm
0: lobbying for. So I look I'd love to, to go. Yeah, I look forward to that message on Slack tomorrow. Then yeah. <laughs> yeah. I see <laughs> Bye, where you're David. going. Bye, David. Off one. to Brazil. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, I, I guess it can't be a, to your point, Kate, and and maybe uh, Anita. I know you sort of cover the region, but actually. It can't be a good time to be an incumbent bank in Brazil right now because, you know, the the argument's usually like, well, they'll never scale. And it's like, well, they've got 54 million customers. And it's like, well, they'll never be profitable. And you're like, oh, no, they've done that too. So, like, are, are the incumbent banks sort of prepared for the the battle that is ensuing?
3: Oh, I don't know if they're prepared, but I think it's definitely a, a spot that's ripe for disruption. I, I'm not sure how old this stat is, but it's definitely from the past couple of years. I read that five banks own up to 95% of the total assets in the Brazilian economy. I think that's changing now with the rise of these fintechs. But I mean, with such high interest rates in the region and, you know, with with the lack of access and so much of the population in Latin America is still underbanked. So there is really a huge demand and a huge desire. And obviously the incumbents aren't meeting Meeting that opportunity, they aren't rising to the occasion, and so I think they should they should be concerned. They should be scared because this is the this is the prime market for fintech adoption, right? You have the demographic trends that are in in the right spot. You have that historically unfavorable interest rate environment where people aren't able to get access to credit, and that's why Creditas has seen such a huge success because they've been able to bring those rates just a little bit lower for their customers, and there's huge demand for that.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, uh, I, I don't think there's any—I don't think there's any region in the world where the incumbents don't have like more money and more customers in, in that sense. But reacting to this change is not like turning on a tap, you know. It's a—it's uh, like a, a a change of sort of mentality and culture and purpose and 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 sort of almost um, relearning a lot of the things that got them to the to the dominance that they've they've got in the market now. So, uh, you know, can the, we will sort of talk about the innovators dilemma, the sort of Clayton Christensen thing. It's like, can the fintech startups get to scale before the incumbents learn innovation? And, and actually what we're seeing in the Brazilian market is like, uh, my money's on the fintechs now, like those guys are killing it, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why the move into the mortgages space i i'm particularly interested in because i think again we've heard that as a narrative globally of well fine the fintechs can do like the travel money and the pocket money but like we'll keep the lending because like that's complicated and we're big boys and we know how to manage that but now like if the fintechs start to take the mortgages
0: as well then, <laughs> yeah, yeah it's like it's it's hard they'll never work it out oh my god they've worked it out like uh, ring the alarm or something i don't know whatever that means in yeah, yeah. so i think yeah watch watch the mortgages space exciting all right. Well, um, the LATAM space is pretty hot. Uh, and actually, the fintech scene more broadly down there is is uh, not just the temperature of the region uh, in the way in which Kate wants to go to, but the sort of fr- frothiness of what's happening as well. But if you want to learn a little bit more about it, go check out episode 603 of Fintech Insider Insights, where Benjamin Ensel was joined by guests from Spirulem, New Bank, uh, Prometo to discuss what's going on in the region. All right, next story that we've got is one that was covered um, a bunch of places, but we picked up on TechCrunch. Uh, CADMOS, a salary payments platform for migrant workers, raises $29.5 million. Um, just four months after announcing $8.5 million seed round of funding, Berlin-based CADMOS has added another $29 million, $29.5 million uh, to the pot via a Series A tranche led by Blossom Capital. Founded in 2021, the startup was born with the vision to tackle the restrictions placed on the financial freedom of cross-border employees. It offers companies a low-cost and secure method for international salary transfers, while every migrant worker receives a digital wallet, as well as a connected debit card to remit and directly spend money. Um, super interesting. I mean, it just shows, doesn't it? It's um, It ain't hard times everywhere, right? Actually, if people can see a, a clear route to, to profitability or a Clear route to to revenue or or scale in this sense in terms of what they're doing. Then there's no shortage of money out there. You know, I guess we we should talk about this in in uh, in the sense of you know Cadmos. Um, I mean, it sounds like a really interesting business, but but it, you know, back to my point. Uh, really, it's like uh, if there's probably lots of VCs out there trying to spend money because they've got funds that they need to get money away on. Are we? Do you reckon in the market that we're in, even though there is a downturn, we're still going to see you know. Twenty-nine point five on a on uh, a Series A for relatively small companies actually a, a big deal, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean for these companies that uh, that amount of money is, is transformational. So obviously it doesn't compare to anything like we'd expect to see with Kleiner. But I think we're sort of chatting now about those like mega rounds potentially being on the decrease. Anyway, so as you say, maybe the the money is going to get broken down and distributed in smaller amounts, but potentially to earlier stage fintechs, which would be really exciting. And they've picked a really great. Customer audience to focus on. I think you know, the last estimates I saw, I think like there's a, some stats from the International Labour Organization. I think there's 160, 170 million workers who travel abroad for employment. So I mean that's not a that's like you know, a whole massive country worth of people um, and definitely underserved at the moment. And it's interesting that they're you know, we've seen some offerings focused on just like the employees, but it's interesting that they've kind of got. Both sides of the coin that they've created the platform for the employers and the employees. So that suggests to me that they're kind of really thinking about the connections, like how they create that whole end-to-end experience, um, which which is is great and it's exciting.
0: Mm. I mean, like you say, it's it's interesting, isn't it? When you know you sort of say, well, they're going after these niches, but it's like some bloody great big niche, you know, like um, you know, focusing into like construction, healthcare, and hospitality. But like actually, that's a a huge population of people that actually have a real a real problem. Um, Anita, what do you think on this one? Is this something that, uh, do you, see uh, both those sides of it, do you think we're going to st- still see big rounds with people getting funding away? But uh, also, what do you think of um, the opportunities for CADMOS?
3: Yeah, as as for the big rounds, I mean, I was thinking about this with Klarna, I think some of the issue might have been that expectations were almost too high. So looking at it from that perspective, you know, the the valuation drop isn't that surprising or that unexpected. You know, there was Obviously, I think BNPL, I agree with Kate is here to stay, but I think that you know expectations were were just so massive before in the market, not just in BNPL, but across the board. And we're seeing some of that come back to to reason. But you know when you think about Cadmos, I, I thought what was really interesting about this story is that they are sort of focusing on this niche of, you know, migrant workers and people who who maybe, you know they they feel have a specific need. And I think a lot of fintechs across the board actually haven't chosen to go that niche route. What they do is they sort of develop one niche product and then they try to become a one-stop shop for everything. I mean, that's what Creditas is doing, buying this mortgage lender. That's what they're doing, buying a bank. And with a company like Cadmos, yeah, they are starting out with this sort of niche. But one trend I'm going to be following really closely is, you know, are fintechs going to continue choosing to roll all their products and services up into one? Or, you know, are we going to see sort of a reemergence of these more differentiated early stage startups getting funding because they have a, a distinct value add? You know, it's a really noisy, really crowded space. So to actually stand out and say this is the population I'm focusing on, I think does give them an, an advantage. But over their life cycle, it's possible that they will choose to expand and, you know, become more of this one-stop shop for that particular community.
0: Yeah, it's, it's fascinating that isn't it? And, and often um, we sort of say it's like, look, no bank on the planet started with all of the products and all of the business lines and all of the different things that they do now. It was, yeah. you know, like a hundred years of success that let them get carried away, you know. And actually figuring that out. But I mean, Abubakar, have we seen that in in the the context that you cover? Have we seen startups have that beachhead and, and pivot into other things when they've been successful? Or you know, do you think we need to kind of keep people in that or has there anybody been brave enough, shall we say, to to stay in that monoline focus?
2: Yeah, that's the thing. Everybody eventually begins to expand and um get bigger. And um a few of the startups that started six years ago, they've eventually began to expand and do other things. I know of a few of them that were super focused on a particular niche and now they're rebonding by um starting up um new businesses and payments and lending in marketplaces and all these other areas over the last two years. And so I, I think that's a trend that's not going to go away. It's going to come back. It's going to stay strong as businesses establish a niche and get a focus and get a specialization and also get that branding in a particular area. They're eventually going to go broader to, to see if they can capture a larger share of the market that they're operating in or the broader market that they're looking to disrupt as a whole. And I'm also particularly interested with this migrant trend or the focus on migrant workers, because it's also something that's happening here too in Africa. Um, I've noticed a few companies um, in this market that have um, gone into countries like the US and the UK, and they're focused on serving the African diaspora in that in these places. And then they also have their footholds in Africa too at the same time. And so they're trying to... Serve the two continents or the two regions at the same time, because they know that the diaspora give or take has um, higher revenue per user compared to most people on the continent where the where the market um, in terms of population size is But for in terms of revenue, most of them are thinking there's a larger pool of um, people that can be you know brought in as customers in the diaspora, and so that 's where they're shifting some of their attention to in recent months, and i 've noticed this with about three or five companies so far. And they continue to do so because um, it's not just about remittances, which is the major focus for um, international businesses, focus on the African diaspora, These days, they are looking to bank these folks because they know they are moving into a new country with no credit history. They are moving into a new country with no background. They are moving into a new country, and they also need to send money back to their folks in their home countries. So they want to provide that rail that will help them to do all of these things without actually having to expect that they would move out as their income and their bank um, background gets bigger and more complex and more sophisticated. So I think that that trend is actually something that um, I'm going to keep an eye on and see how it matures over the coming years.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Sometimes I, I sit back and go, is this just history kind of repeating itself? You know, what I mean, like actually the banks started, they got successful, like mergers and acquisitions, you know, fast forward 200 years and like here we are with all the incumbents. And then, you know, are the challenges going to go through that same period of consolidation and acquisitions and, you know, failures and all sorts of stuff that will happen. And, you know, 40 years from now, is we, are we going to be sitting here again saying the same thing about some other disruptors that are going to kind of come along in that sense? But I mean, that's what makes it fascinating, right? You just don't know how this is going to end.
1: Go write a book, David. Sounds like a
0: premise for a book. I don't know. I don't have the patience for that. I don't have any long words. That's my problem with books. And I don't have any grammar or spelling either. That's, that's probably the main one. That's why we do a podcast, not a blog. That's fair enough. Yeah. All right. On that note, we better kind of move on. There is a bunch of stories that we didn't manage to cover. So we're going to try and whistle through a few of these quickly to uh, give them a little bit of a shout out. Kate, do you want to start?
1: Absolutely. So first, over from Bloomberg, but I've seen this report a couple of places actually, almost 4.5 million UK families are in serious financial trouble Um, The number of UK households facing acute financial strain has risen by almost 60% since October and is now higher than at any point during the coronavirus pandemic, a survey has found. The Aberdeen Financial Fairness Trust and researchers at the University of Bristol estimated that 16% of households, or 4.4 million, are in serious financial difficulties and a further 20% describe themselves as struggling. The squeeze is set to intensify in October when another spike in energy bills is expected to see inflation top 11%. Of those in serious financial difficulty, 71% have apparently reduced the quality of food they eat, 36% have sold or pawned possessions, and 27% have cancelled or not renewed insurance. So, really difficult times. I think the fact that we're seeing this level of impact on households, so quickly is really indicative of how precarious a lot of people's finances were before we hit these economic challenges. You know, It's probably not the lived experience of many people who work in financial services, but many households have budgets that have very little buffer in them. So when fixed costs like utilities, like petrol, you know, areas where people really can't cut back or economise, when those increase and families get into trouble really, really quickly. And this data is just from the UK, but obviously inflation is impacting people all around the world. Um, and I'm just really hoping that this could be a time for fintechs to come become meaningful partners for customers trying to keep financially afloat. You know, budgeting isn't sexy, but it's going to be more essential than ever in the months to come. Um, and actually, you know, for more on the cost of living and inflation, we've uh, got a, an upcoming FinTech Insider Insight show looking at how inflation is impacting financial services and what the industry can do to help with some great guests. So keep an eye out for that one.
0: Very good. Uh, next up, there was a story that was covered over on alpha which is Revolut launches learn and earn crypto courses. Revolut is launching educational courses on cryptocurrency and rewarding cr- customers with tokens on the app. The aim is to help improve their customers' knowledge of cryptocurrencies through short and simple courses on crypto basics and other topics including blockchain, popular tokens, and protocols. There are two courses available currently, crypto basics, and a course based on the multi-chain network Polkadot. The Web3 platform behind the rewards for the courses is uh, .dot tokens. The courses are now available to Revolut customers through the app, and after taking the course and passing a quiz, they can earn up to £14 in .dot tokens. I mean, it ain't a bad time to get some cryptocurrency. Like, if you've gotten on getting them, well, they're cheap. You know, what I mean, like it's that might turn out I mean, it's not quite two pizza territory where we're getting to at this stage, but it's like, do you know what? Like, if you're going to earn some for free like, this is a good way of doing it. I feel a little bit like it's like a gateway drug to like thinking like this is where you put all of your money for investments and whatnot. Anita laughing at me there. Um, but actually, you know, it's a good thing. Education is always a good thing, isn't it, in financial services. So well done, Revolut stepping in and uh, doing something on that sense.
1: Do we need to carry out that with that? Like, this is not financial advice or?
0: Yeah, nothing I ever say is financial advice, guys. Like, uh, feel free uh, uh, everybody to put that one at the beginning of every podcast just to make sure people know. All right, let's bring everybody back for the final story because this is a bit of a weird one, isn't it? Playboy goes full Minecraft, a teaser's pixelated mansion in the metaverse. Sentence I never thought I would ever have to say. Like not even some of those words on this podcast but uh, so Playboy is partnering with the Sandbox a metaverse platform that hosts games NFTs and other experiences to introduce its own Meta Mansion Playboy in- unveiled its official NFT project a collection of nearly 12,000 rabbit figures known as Rabbitars hmm, uh, back in April and the creation of the metaverse Uh, based hub functions as a continuation of that project. Both Playboy and The Sandbox tease the project on Twitter with the inclusion of a short video. Shot in a first-person perspective, the viewer is ushered into a gated property by a woman dressed in a recognizable Playboy bunny uh, and designed with what looks like Minecraft graphics. Now, I'm really surprised, because I didn't really even know Playboy was a thing, like, anymore. Like, I thought that died with Hugh Hefner, do you know what I mean? Like, it's, is that, is it even, like, social like, tonally acceptable these days that that's a thing?
1: I mean, I'm definitely not the expert, but I think they didn't, they they moved away from, like, the nude pictures stuff. and they, they? They tried, I think, yeah, a couple of years ago now, I think they, they stopped doing, like, the nudity, at least on the website, I don't know. Um, so, I think they're now trying to move into, like, more of a sort of standard e-commerce model, but just with that sort of sexy, sexy edge. Yeah, I but don't who know. is this for?
0: Like, is it for, like, because it's like Minecraft graphics, so is this for kids? Like, I'm not sure my 10-year-old, like, I'm not sure my wife would like my 10-year-old playing this version of Minecraft, you know? Uh, Anita, what do you think on this?
3: Yeah, I mean, to be honest, that's one of the weird things about the metaverse to me. I think there's a lot of hype around it, but when I've actually seen some of these metaverse experiences, it just feels like playing a children's video game, and you know, obviously, during the pandemic, and I mean, we're still in the pandemic, but during the full swing and the full height of it, people were staying home and maybe there was a little more promise to some of these things. But now it's like, I would rather go hang out with people in real life. I would rather go have that experience than you know, be walking around with my avatar in this sort of virtual world. But it's funny that Playboy is getting into this. I mean, they're not the only company that has made a pivot that you would think is dead. Obviously, there's GameStop, which is, you know, everyone thinks of as a meme stock now. But really, they're they're a brick and mortar retailer and they just launched an NFT marketplace this past week. So I think there's a lot of those sort of brands that need a refresh and they need an update and they're they're looking for anything to change things up and to switch it up. And so maybe for Playboy, the metaverse is just a buzzword and they've decided, okay, let's let's try this. Let's see if it sticks. And, you know, in terms of adult entertainment companies that are getting into this space, I know that OnlyFans has also been exploring, um, you know, NFT avatars and they've been sort of saying they're going to play around with Web3. I think it's possible that it's a lower risk move because they're not you know, it doesn't require a massive investment to do something like this. It's a free way to get your branding out there. It's a free way to to score some headlines. But in terms of the longevity of this as a strategy for Playboy, I really don't know if it's something they can rely on.
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I mean, it feel it sort of screams a little bit of like desperation for like shouting for relevancy, as you say, it's like a yeah. uh, you know, hey guys, we're still here and we've got like NFTs and like the kids love those. And it's like, wait, like that's not that's not the thing. Like, it's just a bit weird. And there is, there is something in that point you made about um, experiences in, in the metaverse, which is I found really interesting. I did a, a roundtable with Visa recently and there was a lady there from PayPal who made a really interesting point around, you know, actually the experiences that you can then get in the metaverse. They're so all about, well, it's that VIP thing. It's that, and she was actually talking about uh, Uber are investing quite heavily in, you know, thinking about uh, engagements with the metaverse. And I was like, that makes no sense to me. I don't really understand. It's like, what, are they there's a taxi? And she was like, well, yeah. Like, actually, if you want to experience the VIP, like, who's your favorite brand, Kate?
1: I mean, you embarrassed me enough on the last podcast with the chat about Ken Dodd, so I'm, I'm not going not gonna to answer that question. So we're going to that
0: Jason Donovan concert. <laughs> and uh, so, like, the idea, like, you know, you can get picked up at in a, you know, a... Um, Stretch limo and have the experience of getting there and people greeting you and going in the VIP room and meeting Jason your idol and like all of those things, you know, like and that sort of then starts to make sense to me because it's like it's like that VIP world but without leaving the you know sad when you take the headset off and it's like three a.m. and it's nighttime and you sit in the dark in your house type thing. But apart from that, you know, like actually you can see why that type of experience in the metaverse would be fun.
1: You can, I say, and I suppose you know, Anita was talking about. Childhood game graphics, but yeah, I spent an inordinate amount of time during lockdown playing Animal Crossing, which is, you know, not exactly a high graphic experience. So I think, yeah, I suppose that, that to me feels like a sort of whimsical escapism kind of experience, whereas the metaverse is being positioned as like this whole thing that will dominate our lives. So yeah, I guess there's a difference between something that you play as a distraction versus. Something where, as you say, you're like building all of your interactions around. Yeah. But, um, yeah. I mean, I think when we've seen technological changes in the past, I like actually sort of adult entertainment has played a role in in driving that. So, like VHS tapes. Some of the listeners are like, what are these things? Um, but you know, they got driven by people wanting to watch saucy films and the same you know around you know the uptake of broadband like people are pushing for faster internet speed so they could access this kind of content in their own home so yeah, maybe they're putting a bet on this being the thing that will drive the metaverse forwards that people wanting to get into the playboy mansion and um, have a play around
0: there we go um it, i guess it's something that we haven't seen so much in the african region yet from an nft perspective is that is that something that do you think it's just not quite there in terms of the the market for this type of thing I mean, I don't mean Playboy more broadly. I, I mean, actually, um, you know, the metaverse, I haven't actually seen any startups really investing in things like the metaverse or or uh, even NFTs don't seem as big a, a, a bigger thing at the moment.
2: Right. I think I think the first thing is um, many of the startups here and even their customers and the internet customers are always thinking about how rational and how realistic are some of these things. That's the first thing that goes through their minds. And that's what a lot of people are wondering. And um, I, I think that's what has dictated um, how people perceive many of these things. Um, so, um, yeah, I think that that's the issue. But on the, on the on the broad part of it, I think a few startups have emerged. And they've tried to um, pump out the whole narrative that they're going to build some metaverse for Africa. I mean, we've seen Jumbo. Um, we've seen um, a few other companies that have raised large rounds in, in the last six, seven months. And they've all done so with the narrative of Web3 and metaverse. And so it's still not clear what exactly they're going to build here and how exactly to take off. And just recently, there was a company that started off, um, Afropolitan, which is focused on, um, the network states. And, um, we're still looking at all those things and paying attention to how much, how well they'll develop, um, over time. Um, but realistically for now, very few people and their customers are paying attention to, um, the NFT broadly, but there is a niche community. Um in some markets, like in Nigeria, for example, who actually trade NFTs, who actually try to create their own NFTs, um, but it's still very small. Um, but it's still something that has been um operational for a while, and it has also gained a lot from the hype in the last two years. I wanted to add this, which is um um about the adult industry, um, because like like everybody has said already, the adult industry is all about creating the best experiences for people, um, you know, in a particular kind of way. And so it's like, if they can recreate their best fantasies and, you know, the fantasies that people are craving for deep down, um, why haven't they done it, you know, all this time? And so I think it's a headache for, you know, companies like Facebook that try to position the, the metaverse as this very serious thing, as this very, you know, unique thing that could change human experience. But when you've watched movies like uh, Vice, for example, you tend to see how the metaverse and, you know, the devices that comes with it can be domesticated, how it is used in real time. And that is one thing that I've always pondered about, like what exactly would this look like when the adult industry jumps on this whole experience that the metaverse can create for everyday people?
0: Yeah. I imagine, um, I imagine at this stage, some of our listeners are like, you guys are so naive. You need to go to this website. We're going to get a flurry of emails that I do not click on in our corporate network. But uh, let's uh, see what we get. I think I, I definitely um, agree with you. And I, and I share the, the sort of skepticism of, uh, you know, is actually all of this a little bit sort of... Um, you know, Emperor's New Clothes. But uh, but on the plus side, the bunnies are wearing clothes now. So that's that's something, isn't it? And that probably is a good place to wrap up this week's new show. So thank you so much for everybody uh, for joining us today. Where can people learn a little bit more about you, Kate?
1: Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, Kate Moody on LinkedIn or at K8 Moody on Twitter.
0: Very cool. Bakar, where can people learn a little bit more about you?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, on Twitter, uh, my handle is IATalkspace.com And on Instagram, it's still IA Talkspace. And on LinkedIn, it's Abubakar Idris. Very cool.
3: Anita? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Anita Ramaswamy on Twitter. um, My LinkedIn is also Anita Ramaswamy. So feel free to uh, connect with me there. But I also wanted to just mention really quick that I do have a crypto podcast. It's called Chain Reaction, and we run that through TechCrunch, where I'm a co-host. So if you want to hear my voice a little bit more, you can uh, feel free to listen. Very, very cool.
0: Uh, As for me, I'm always lurking on LinkedIn these days, so you can find me over there. Feel free to connect. Thank you very much for listening, to everybody, this week. And you can join in the conversation on social media, or you can email us on podcast at 11fs.com. No rude links, please. Thanks very much. Goodbye.